Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The unrest in Cuba, some of the most violent scenes in more than 40 years, also has the street in Miami stirring. What are the stakes for a regime that's been in power since 1959? What can Washington do? What should Washington do? Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me is Fernand Amandi, President and CEO of Ben Dixon and Amandi International, a Miami-based public opinion research and communications consulting firm that has advised political candidates, NGOs, and foundations. You guys have performed several studies on the exile community, on Cubans on the island. You've taught at both University of Miami and Miami-Dade College. How are you, sir? It's great to be here with you this beautiful week. Robin, especially with so much going on, it feels for those of us like you and me who have spent a lot of time growing up in South Florida, unprecedented in a sense. Well, here's the deal. I think like something flares up in South Florida a good every 10 years, right? Marielle, the enormous boat lift crisis in 1980. You had another crisis happen when the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, you know you had this client-state relationship interrupted in the early 90s and a, another exodus of Cuban-Americans coming to the island. There was Elian Gonzalez, the little boy who was discovered on an inner tube and that caused rioting in Miami when he was confiscated and sent back to his father in Cuba in 2000. And then Fidel Castro dying ultimately he survived so many U.S. presidents. And now in 2021, this flare-up decades and decades after the revolution that brought Fidel Castro to power. What made this one so different? Well, well first, let me just try and capture wh- what I think makes this moment so different, Robin. And, and I don't mean to be cavalier about this in any way, shape, or form, but you know, the sports equivalent to this, you all remember a time when the Chicago Cubs, the lovable losers, you know, they, they had not won a World Series, I think it was like in almost 100 years. Right, right. And, And for those of us that are under the age of 62, that are either Cuban-American or have spent a lot of time engaged in the issue, you know, the idea of Cuba finally experiencing this moment would have been the equivalent to the Cubs winning the World Series. Those other flare-ups that you describe were kind of like when the Cubs made the playoffs, but, you know, didn't quite make it even to the World Series. What we saw last weekend, those unprecedented protests on the island, that was the equivalent, not of the Cubs winning the World Series, because, of course, that would mean the liberation of Cuba, which has been the dream of the exile community, but they're in the World Series. So something has radically changed. We have never seen that. We have been anxiously awaiting that. So to finally see the images of Cubans themselves on the island, not just in a little flurry of outbursts in a little city or two or just a neighborhood or two, but really comprehensively in every major area and population center of the island, all saying the same thing. We want freedom 
and an end to the regime and the dictatorship. That truly has been a game-changing moment, and I think what has caused such interest and engagement and candidly hope here in Miami and in Florida and around the free world. Let me ask you, stepping back from this, stepping back from Little Havana and Cayo Ocho and outside the famous restaurant Versailles, where people gather and, and vent and taking over causeways and showing how important this has been to the heartbroken exile community that since 1959, right? 60 has been mourning and has been awaiting something like this. Are you surprised stepping back that it's not even second or third in the news cycle nationally? You know, I'm not surprised because, you know, candidly, while this issue is the issue here, certainly in South Florida, you know, the rest of the country, I think, has kind of seen <laughs> the passions of the Cuban exile community kind of, as you said earlier, rear its head every few minutes or so. And candidly, while it's an exciting development. You know, there are bigger things happening in the United States and even in the world. And certainly you would even argue a greater threat, a greater problem with American democracy potentially hanging in the balance as well. So it doesn't surprise me that this this hasn't risen to, you know, the caliber of the top two or three stories in the nation. But, but certainly for those of us that are followers of the issues that have emotional investment in it, you know, because we've been waiting so long for this to finally see it happening in our eyes and not in some kind of, you know, crafted tale in the window over the coffee window of Versailles, the fact that it's really happening does draw the interest and the passion and I think is driving it down here. Fernand, uh, Fidel Castro, the cult of personality, the very face of the revolution, passed away in November of 2016, uh, let's say a good five years ago, right? Is Raul Castro, his sibling, uh, becomes the nominal ruler of Cuba. He's not in power right now. It's kind of twice removed from him as this leader. What what exactly is that whole concept hanging on to? I mean, there isn't an all-powerful Soviet Union that's funneling money and arms to Cuba like it was in the 1960s. I mean, it is kind of dependent on Venezuela, which itself is borderline failed state for petroleum and some degree of cash, and maybe there's an exchange of pharmaceuticals. Who's hanging on to what right now? So, you know, because it is and was a cult of personality, I mean, you, you use the exact appropriate term to describe the revolution, really personified in, in the face and in the life of Fidel Castro. He was the unquestioned author of the Cuban Revolution. He was the charismatic, although brutal, repressive leader, you know, that ruled kind of with an, uh, a suede glove. You know, he had a soft touch in a sense, but he was very quick to clamp down anything that looked like a protest. And, and you're right, his absence from the scene, both literally and now metaphorically, means that the inability to create an heir to Fidel, we have not seen the Castro children or the, or the offspring really uh, aspire to that role. And with his brother, who was really the, the last living link to Castro himself, now having just because of the challenges of age, he's 90 years old, have to literally leave. You've got this kind of dinosaur regime, this Jurassic leadership still there, kind of preserved somewhat in amber. There hasn't been in anyone to be able to capture the imagination. So to your question, what's holding on? What's preserving it? It's just a naked hope to cling to power. And that's why I think you've seen these awkward and, uh, you know, very unserious attempts by the current president in Cuba, 
Miguel Diaz-Canel to try and almost do a poor man's imitation of the tactics that Fidel himself would have used, but they just aren't having the impact on the island because people are no longer afraid. Fernand, I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but what's been the tipping point? Clearly, COVID is the exogenous shock that, you know, we're talking developed economies, developing economies, United States, India, Brazil, alike, Italy. I mean, this has affected Iran, Southeast Asia. That also had the ripple effect, the secondary effect of it just shut down global tourism. And so it's being starved of dollars for the past 20 months. Is there something more precise that kind of brought people out in the streets and kind of Maybe at this point they said, you know what, this 1960 social compact, maybe it isn't working for us. Well, I, I think you've put your finger on it. And I want to come back to, I think, what the essential issue that, you know, is the is the spark that blew everything up, which is, of course, the lack of tourism. Cuba has become, in essence, just kind of a, a hang-strung-together economy, which because they've lost their massive state sponsors in the past— the former Soviet Union, now Venezuela, that has its own economic challenges and crises. Cuba really did become almost totally dependent on tourism. They weren't any exporter of any major product anymore. They used to be a massive sugar provider to the world. That has diminished. Uh, some of the other industries as well have also diminished dramatically. But I think we've seen these conditions really start to percolate really over the last year and a half. And they've been driven by what you would call a generational movement, Robin. You've had artists and musicians and young cultural leaders on the island, especially driven by the advent of the greater availability of the internet and mm. social media that has opened up the world, in a sense, to the eyes of a generation in Cuba and seeing the regime just unable to provide even the basic services. So there was a, a famous song that came out by a, a group called Gente Sona and a singer named Yotuel, which took one of the famous icons and slogans of the revolution, which was Patria o Muerte, which literally means fatherland or death, and kind of turned that on its head and said, no, 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 not fatherland or death, patria o muerte, but fatherland and life, patria y vida. Mm -hmm. And that was really kind of something that I think helped set the conditions. And why do I say that? Because even in the protests happening now, you see people chanting that phrase, patria y vida, and freedom and liberty and an end to the regime. Those are the themes. So I think the combination of the availability and greater access to the internet and online and social media, which has opened up the world uh, in the eyes of the young Cuban generation, the horrible lack of, of basic services, which the pandemic and its crushing of the tourism industry, which has helped the, the Cuban economy contract by 11%, it just got to the point where people said, we literally now have nothing to lose. We don't have food. We don't have opportunity. Our lives are in jeopardy because of the pandemic and the inability of the, of the regime to provide adequate health care. Even if it means risking life and limb, we're going to go out and call for what we've long wanted, which is freedom, opportunity, and an end to this dictatorship. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Joining me from Miami to talk about Cuba, the two are inextricably linked, is Fernanda Mandy, president and CEO at Ben Dixon and Amandi International. It's a opinion research and communications consulting firm that has advised political candidates, NGOs, and foundations. I do see this headline in Gloria Estefan, very famous exile, uh, says the United States should get involved in Cuba. Quote, my heart hurts for the Cuban people on the island and what they've already gone through for over 62 years. But now they are saying enough, she writes in caps, 
Despite the beatings, the murders and incarcerations, the abuses of power, the starvation and the attempted destruction of their spirits, they need our support and that of the democratic and free countries of the world, she wrote on Instagram. In both English and in Espanol, you know, this has been echoed by the likes of Pitbull, Cuban-American kind of singer-spokesman-in-chief. There's Camila Cabello and the retired American actress Eva Mendez. You know, and I think about this in parallel when you see protests in Iran in 2009 or in 1999. And what does it mean to say we're with you? When the rubber hits the road, I mean, when the bullet hits the whatever, it's it's when and if the troops fire on people. Is there going to be some sort of military intervention or is there going to be some sort of no-fly zone? I mean, aside from platitudes over the straits saying we're with you and we support you, what exactly do you think that the exile community and the, the disgruntled Cuban populace wants from this White House? Well, a lot of important points that you raised there that I think need to be unpacked. Number one, you know, you cited Gloria Estefan. And as I talked about earlier, what's fascinating is you see this really being discussed and engaged with on cultural terms. Uh, it's a lot of artists and writers and filmmakers and musicians in Cuba that are making this case. And, and here in exile, you see a lot of the iconic leaders of the Cuban exile community that are artists and musicians and writers and cultural leaders themselves, whether it be Camila Cabello, Pitbull, Gloria Estefan, as you talk about, and even others echoing the call. The challenge for those on the island is that Cuba is just that. It's an island. It's literally disconnected uh, from a lot of other sources of information. And, and the Cuban regime has exploited its island status uh, almost as an island prison. So information kind of seeps in. What I think we have to be very clear on is there is not going to be a military intervention, at least on behalf of the United States, and, and I doubt really from any other country, in terms of intervening on behalf of the protesters. That just does not seem to be on the cards or in the table at all. And I think those that do raise the specter of that are, are committing a great disservice and inappropriately raising expectations to the courage and the bravery shown by those on the island. What I think the people on the island are paying very close attention to is whether or not the international community, not just the exile community, but if the international community is with them, are they siding with them? Are they showing alignment and solidarity? And I think the answer to that question overwhelmingly has been yes. You know, President Biden in his initial statements clearly had to make a choice. He could have kind of gone a middle road. He could have sided maybe with the government. In this case, he absolutely aligned himself with the protesters. And I think you see most of the community of nations following suit. So what I think the people on the island recognize, especially that young generation are the ones that are risking the most are saying, look, this is our fight. We know it, we've got to have it, but we'd love to have the support and the awareness that can be brought on by our friends and allies outside of the island. And I think that's what you see happening thus far. Fernand, what I just don't understand is what do you do with that support? Yes, it's understood that every president since, what, JFK, right, in the attempted Bay of Pigs coup, maybe Jimmy Carter half-heartedly, maybe they thought that Obama was half-hearted with sanctions relief on the island, was in favor of democracy and, yes, curtail the totalitarian impulse, Mr. Castro. What does that do? What can you do with that? One, you can't buy bread with that. 
Two, it's not going to protect you from bullets. I see that upward of five to 10,000 people have been arrested. You have summary beatings on the street. You yourself excerpted this one 15-year-old boy getting beaten up by cops. You posted that on Twitter. This is what I don't understand. Maybe I'm taking you into a deeper theoretical conversation. What do you do with that moral suasion? It's not going to protect you from bullets, and it's not going to improve your economy. You're I mean, right on the money, but I'll tell you the one thing that is different and, and why really this is such a unique and fluid, organic situation, Robin. And it's the fact that, again, these protests have never happened before on the island. So we are in uncharted waters here. And I think the rationale for continuing to draw awareness and create global pressure is to cast this spotlight. The regime now has a choice, and that choice is, in the face of these unprecedented protests, they're either going to continue a population-wide crackdown. And what are the costs of those images? What are the costs of those actions if they begin to circulate in world consciousness? Because one of the things that the regime has exploited over the decades since the revolution was successful in 1959 was the cleavage, the divide between those that kind of took a romantic view towards the Cuban revolution. Those that said, you know, it's not that bad. Cuba has done some good things. And now in light of the population rising up for the first time in 62 years saying, no, it is that bad. And we do want freedom. We want an end to this dictatorship. And if the regime is willing to allow themselves to not only be captured in all of the viral footage that we've seen, but to continue that repressive tactics, I think the perceptions can change. I'll say something maybe in politic here. I think what you're hinting at is probably right. You know, in, in, a, in a fight between those that have the guns and the bullets and the weapons versus those that don't, you know, if those that have the bullets and the guns and the weapons are willing to use them on those that don't, it, it's tough for those that don't to win. And it may require some sort of an external engagement. But right now, that's not on the table. And that's why I think the people in Cuba are saying, look, just stand with us, get this message out, show that we're willing to take the first step and take this fight on our own. But we need international support, eyes and pressure to continue documenting this and getting this message out to the world. Fernand, last week, uh, Cuba's President Miguel Diaz-Canel blamed the U.S. embargo for what he said, I'm quoting, politics of economic asphyxiation, which he said was having a cumulative effect on the country. Uh, in a response by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, he denied that the protests there have anything to do with the United States. I think it would be a grievous mistake for the Cuban regime to interpret what is happening in dozens of towns and cities across the island as a result or product of anything the United States has done. How is that? If the United States suddenly inundated the island with food aid, with pharmaceuticals, with vaccines, with, you know, you name it, baby powder uh, for milk, which is very hard to come by, would that kind of quell the opposition to the regime? I mean, there have been varying schools of thoughts that look back at Tiananmen in 1989 and said that, gosh, if we had really truly opened trade after that crackdown, it would work. But if anything, China's regime has only become more autocratic. To step back, where are you? In the grand scheme of, of sanctions, you still have family there. Your parents were born in Cuba. This is something that exiles in South Florida and across the United States want to help you know, on a person-to-person -person basis, but they also do want to suffocate the regime. Well, look, I mean, first and foremost, I, I come back to one of my central premises, which is there was the United States policy to Cuba before the events of July 11th of this year, and there's now the United States policy towards Cuba after the events of July 11th. And before... 
it was really hard for the U.S. policy to be so singularly focused on this regime change concept because you didn't have the people themselves able or willing to do what we're now seeing them do, which is to rise up and say enough of this. So that's why you saw it really litigated around the idea of sanctions and incremental issues like the embargo and remittances and travel. Whereas now, as you have folks, again, rising up and I think expressing the, the what we long suspected were veiled sentiments, but now open cries in the streets all around the island of Cuba for freedom and, and democracy means that it's not about justifying the excuse. And make no mistake, Diaz-Canel is using the embargo as an excuse to simply proffer up for why the regime has failed its people. There's something also ironic, Robin, about you know Cuba being this quote, socialist paradise, unquote, communist country that now says they must have the infusion of the capitalist United States in order to survive economically. A couple of other misnomers in the embargo argument that Diaz-Canel uses, the embargo does not apply to food and medical supplies that the United States provides and still provides to the island. Cuba also trades with 70 countries around the world. So, you know, the idea that it's the embargo the embargo is the cause of what's going on. That is just a political smokescreen and football that the Cuban regime exploits. And that I think naively, a lot of people think in and of itself is a panacea. I always say, if you were to eliminate the embargo tomorrow, it would not change the regime. It would not change the oppressive, brutal nature. It would not mean that there would be free elections in Cuba. It would not mean that there would be consequences to speaking out as there are now. It would not mean that there's a free press. However, if you remove that repressive dictatorship and regime that has been ruling with an iron fist for 62 years, you almost immediately alleviate much of the suffering and misery that the Cuban people who are saying they want eliminated will be eliminated. Fernando Mandy, I got to ask you about the uh, political exigencies of, of this in the United States, specifically Democrat versus Republican. You saw the uh, Democrats not win Florida in election 2020. In fact, South Florida uh, seemed to have tilted back toward Trump. A very pungent message that it accepted was that this Biden administration was going to bring in the kinds of socialism that destroyed your Cuba and destroyed Venezuela. You were at ground zero of that. You certainly felt that with Donna Shalala, the congresswoman who you helped advise. You advised John Kerry back in, in 2004. Now you're witnessing the Black Lives Matter movement signaling solidarity with the Cuban people and saying that that you should spare them from this embargo suffering. What do you think about that? Is part of you kind of cringing that Marco Rubio and Governor DeSantis and uh, you know the mayor of Miami and the GOP have kind of taken the lead on being the, the, the most prominent U.S. voices on this? Well, I mean, look, I mean, it's frustrating from the political lens, even though that this is an issue that really is beyond politics now, because it's really the, the North Star here and the focus should be on the Cuban people and helping the Cuban people and listening to what they're telling us. I always say, you know, I, I may have a voice on this, but don't listen to me. Listen to the people on the island. So, so it is frustrating to see the Republicans kind of take advantage of the political moment. And the Democrats, once again, seem to be operating a little bit in what you might call a slow-footed response. But the reason it's such an opportunity for, in this case, the Democrats is this is something that has vexed 12 U.S. presidents previously, both Republicans and Democrats. 
This has been a policy consideration of the United States for 60 years since the Bay of Pigs invasion, which is regime change needs to come from the people on the island to rise up and call for it. Well, now that it's happened, it's happened under the watch of a Democratic president. And I think President Biden has not just a historic opportunity, but a moral obligation as an American president and a Democratic president at that to engage in a real way. His preliminary statements have been on point from a uh, rhetoric perspective, but this is something that I think requires more than statements. And it also requires the opportunity to dismantle these ridiculous charges that the Democrats are socialists, that Biden is a socialist. What better way to put that to forever and permanent rest than to have a Democratic president and an administration that's Democratic preside over the liberation of Cuba? If they can do that, not only do I think they they will gain from a policy perspective and align themselves with what the United States policy of freedom and democracy has been for the last 246 years, but also reap the political rewards that will come in Florida. And not just from Cuban-American voters, but from Venezuelan voters and Nicaraguan Mm. voters, Colombian voters, all of those that want and see the creep of autocracy and totalitarianism go into their own countries of origin. That's the golden opportunity the Democrats now have. Fernanda Mandy, uh, from your perch down in, in beautiful Coconut Grove, uh, Miami, <laughs> very near and dear to my heart, uh, you know, another South Floridian is former President Donald Trump uh, living there in, in Mar-a-Lago. Under his administration, you saw a significant ramping up of deportations of, of Cubans. I mean, former, you know, either Cuban criminals who got out of jail or or people who were not official, who did not get any sort of naturalization. Uh, I saw headlines in the Miami Herald in late 2019. Cuban deportations have more than doubled in the past year. PBS NewsHour, Trump ramps up deportations to Cuba. There was one flight. Feds deport 119 Cubans back to Havana on Miami flight. Uh, how come this hasn't been met with howls of protest from the exile community? I'm amazed, you know, in the course of my reporting of Mariel refugees who came here, who were excoriated, who were called escoria, scum, from some of the older generation Cubans. They, overwhelmingly in my reporting, seem to support Donald Trump. They are okay with the deportations of of people who were not naturalized here. How has something like this not been a kind of a third rail issue in South Florida for the GOP? Well, I mean, this is, again, why I say don't listen to the exile community as much as you should be listening to those Cubans on the island that are now risking it all. And the reason I say that is because the unseemly side of of what you point out is the stark raving hypocrisy of many in the Cuban-American community uh, on this very subject. And I'm sad to say, I mean, that applies to many people that I consider friends, even family. You know, there was this belief by a lot of them, it was articulated talking about the stark raving hypocrisy. Many of them were criticizing the Cubans that have tried to come to the United States over the last 15 years as saying, those are just economic refugees. Those are different from us. They're not really, they don't believe as much in in the cause like we do. And, And now that tune has obviously abruptly changed. Also, you know, you talked earlier about the Black Lives Matter protests. Many of the same people who 
are now stopping major roadways and thoroughfares, literally interrupting the flow of traffic in the name of protesting on behalf of the Cubans on the island were the same ones who castigated people that were protesting the Black Lives Matter movement in, in response to the murder of George Floyd when they were trying to shut down streets to call attention to the cause. So sadly, I mean, it is an issue that is dripping with hypocrisy, and there is no greater hypocrite than Donald Trump on this, someone who you know, has exploited this issue to the hilt with his kind of alpha instinctual sense of of what to say to win support, even if it has nothing to do with a consistency or ideological morality. Uh, sadly, the, the many in the Cuban-American community and electorate have succumbed to the siren song of Trumpism and the Republican Party saber-rattling on this and, and deliberately uh, exercise hypocritical views when challenged on that. Fernando Mandy, uh, in closing, you get two minutes with President Biden. Suppose he's in South Florida having one of those massive ice cream cones. And he's like, hey, buddy, I see you all the time. I'm at MSNBC. What are you thinking about Cuba? What would you advise him in your kind of a two minute ice cream elevator pitch? Well, if he's already in South Florida, I only need one minute because if it's two minutes and he's in Washington, minute one is to try and convince him to come to South Florida, which is the heart of the Cuban community outside of Cuba itself. Not so much to speak to the Cuban community here, but to address those on the island directly and also make the case to those in the hemisphere, our brothers and sisters in Haiti, in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, in, C- in Colombia, and Peru, who are facing the threat of autocracy, the threat of potential communist takeover of their home countries, and speak in solidarity, in word and in deed. The performative stuff, if you will, matters a lot. He's also not just the president of the United States. Joe Biden is the leader of the free world. So he has the ability to rally the community of nations to the cause of Cuba and express that same solidarity and call openly for an end to the regime, for the regime to step down and for allowing the Cuban community to self-determine themselves. I think if he does those things alone, it will be a monumental leap forward. And again, he will reap policy benefits and political ones as well. You were listening to Fernand Amandi, president and CEO of Ben Dixon and Amandi International. It's a Miami-based public opinion research and communications consulting firm that has advised political candidates, NGOs, foundations. Fernand, you've commissioned every study that has been cited on Cuba and Miami and the intersection therein. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. And as you know, you're always welcome to come back on. Thank you so much, Robin. It's always a pleasure to be with you. And uh, one of these days, there is a bar tab with my signature on it at the mutiny waiting for you and me to uh, do some damage to. (laughs) Thank you. Full disclosure. Stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fullDRadio.com. Please subscribe and recommend the show to others. Additionally, we are all over the socials on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the Cuba conundrum, Cuba, the Miami exile community, what Cuba means in the grand scheme of this hemisphere and to Washington. And economically and from a sanctions perspective, uh, we are joined in Miami by Frankie Rugama, alias Frankie Faze. That's what he's known as down there. He's the exile community activist, a DJ, personality, social media influencer. Uh, Frankie's parents came to this country on the Mariel boat lift in 1980 when 125,000 Cuban refugees arrived in the United States within six months. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, thank you for the for the introduction there. I, I, I like it very much. 
Well, I got to ask you, Frankie, it's being it's being suggested out there that this is the biggest kind of uh, conflagration or crisis faced in Havana since Marielle 41 years ago. Yes. Where, you know, there was a bluff back and forth between Jimmy Carter and Fidel Castro. What is your read down there? Did you kind of expect this to be inevitable? And, and what are your expectations for what is going to happen and what should happen? I think... There will be a change. There will certainly be some sort of change. Uh, will communism end in Cuba within the next couple of weeks? I don't see that happening. Will there be a change? Sure. If someone intervenes, it can be sooner than later, but there will certainly be some sort of change for the better. What is the ideological cause there anyway, right? We have seen the fall of the Soviet Union Venezuela is a leftist ally kind of in this in this hemisphere but what exactly is the regime they're holding on to like you know if if they were to take a grand bargain and say you know what normalize trade with us will still be nominally communist such as the chinese but you know what it's all good would you accept this regime i would never accept that regime because of the history tied along to it they can say tomorrow you know what People can use the internet as much as they want, however they want. People can travel wherever they want, but we're still going to hold on to this communist uh, regime here. I would not be in agreement with that at all because of the hundreds of thousands of Cubans that have died in the process. And I don't think that's something that can be ignored, not by me or by anyone. I don't think anyone should take that lightly. Uh, as we speak, there are people dying. I mean, it's been documented. The government over there has been actually killing people for being in disagreement with their uh, traditions over there. Let me ask you, how much family do you still have there? I have one sister of my grandfather's. She lost touch with us a number of years ago. Uh, there was a sort of a, like a family fallout there, but she was accommodated very fairly because prior to my grandfather getting involved, her living conditions weren't so great. And uh, anyone in Cuba who doesn't have any sort of backing from an outside party is going to live in full poverty. I'm talking about lack of food, lack of air conditioning, lack of electricity, lack of normal things. So why I mean so how do you think about uh sanctions which have been really on Cuba for the better part of more than a half a century now does this is this something that has shown itself to squeeze the government or I understand that the government people close to the party are going to do well anyway and that this is something that might hurt people like the cousin that you have there are people who can't get essential medicines or foodstuffs or baby milk powder the only people that hurt at the end of the day from any sort of shortage or any sort of sanction are the people that live in Cuba, the locals, the day-to-day working man and woman. Government officials will never need for nothing in Cuba. You're talking about people who have generational wealth. These people are billionaires. Of course, we all know how they got it by oppressing a whole nation, but these guys are very well off financially and they can buy whatever they want, whenever they want, the best doctors, the best plumbing, the best houses, whatever they want, they can have it in the snap of a, in the snap of a finger. But like I said, the, the ones who suffer are the people who live there. 
Frankie, tell me about some of the activism and protests that we've seen in Miami over the last you know, two or three weeks since uh, much of this unrest broke in Cuba. You see people taking over the causeway. You see, of course, right there on Calle Ocho outside the Ventana at Versailles. What characterizes this one as opposed to other protests in the back? And what are you hearing on the ground? Well, what I've heard from people is that regular people in Miami, the regular Joe, I'm not talking about any politicians or anyone in that spectrum, day-to-day people, the plumber down the street and the guy next to me holding up a Cuban flag who works at Serrano's, you know, they all have these these thoughts of taking matters in, into their own hands and invading Cuba. But we all know that's not going to happen. And the U.S. Coast Guard is not going to allow it to happen. The Cuban government is certainly not going to let that happen. But people are very upset. Not only are they upset, but they, a lot of people, they have hope in the fact that since everyone in Cuba, mostly everyone in Cuba, has been part of this uprising, they have hope that something will happen if we continue to fight. But like I said, people are very upset with that government. And uh, they're upset with what's currently happening, where people are actually being murdered for standing up for their for their rights. There's a lot of people in Miami that are upset at the protesters, that are upset at the Cuban community, who has all of a sudden taken a stand in support of of the uprising in Cuba. The people standing up for their rights, we support them in full on our end, but we're getting a lot of static if i can say static or or what's a better word for it we're we're getting we're getting uh problems for it there's people like uh the black lives matter organization that are criticizing the way the uh protest on the palmetto was handled there was a protest the other day on the palmetto where cuban demonstrators got on the palmetto the palmetto expressway for the palmetto outside expressway. of south florida listeners yes yes which is the 826 there was a whole group of people, I'm talking about thousands of people, that were standing up against against this whole Cuban regime and this whole thing. And, and it was all to demonstrate the support that we have for the people of Cuba. But of course, other people like the Black Lives Matter organization, they weren't so happy. They started saying on the internet and on, on threads online, they started saying, hey, uh, how come the Cuban protesters are not being arrested for taking over the highway? And when Black Lives Matter protesters several months ago took over the I-95 expressway, uh, they were arrested and, t- and tear gassed. And but so let me ask so you something. As a, young, as a young guy, does that worry you about getting the hearts and minds of younger people here who might be completely simpatico with BLM after George Floyd and everything happened last year that if you can't really build unanimity there, you're not going to be front and center on on kind of mind share and the news cycle for young people if you're already disagreeing uh, with BLM, for example. Well, I had a, I had a conversation with uh, Michael Gardner, the CEO of Headliner Marketing Group. This guy's a, a, an influencer in South Florida. He, the guy's been responsible for many events surrounding private parties for Jay-Z and Puff Daddy and all these guys. And him and I had this conversation where we're not in agreement. He's upset because Cuban protesters weren't arrested. And I had something to say. And I told him, hey, at the end of the day, these Cuban protesters were peacefully protesting. 
There were zero police cars burned. There weren't any any looters involved. Uh, there was zero vandalizing of any property in Miami-Dade County during our protest. And that's why law enforcement treated the protest so lightly. They gently asked people to leave and they allowed it to happen for a certain period of time. So there's a difference. There's a huge difference. And the difference is the protesters. I'm not saying that Black Lives Matter protesters were wrong for being upset. They were, at the end of the day, they were protesting because George Floyd had gotten murdered and and other people in the black community were unfairly killed. I know that Cuban protesters were also very upset because they have family members that are dying in the hands of military and Cuban policemen, but we just handled it a bit differently. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Frankie Rugama. His alias down is Frankie Faze. You might know him as DJ Frankie Faze. He's an exile community activist in South Florida, a personality, social media influencer. Uh, tell me more about your parents who came to this country on the Mariel boat lift in 1980. What's the backstory and what do they tell you? What are some of the stories they share with you? Well, ever since I was little, uh, I was closer to my grandparents than, than anything else. Uh, my my grandfather was really the one that took me under his wing and told me, always told me all these stories throughout my childhood about Cuba and about the moment where they decided to come over. And it's not like they decided to come over. Uh, oh, we're, we're leaving. Let's go. No, they, it took like a matter of like two, three weeks. You had to sign on to, to some list and you had to wait at Mariel Harbor where thousands of American boats uh, met their family members. But not only did they have to pick up their family members, but anyone who was hanging, ar hanging around that wanted to leave desperately could jump on the boat. Let's say you were over there to pick up your sister and your grandmother. If Johnny from down the street was there with his parents, he had to go on your boat too if there was enough space on your boat. And... Mm. Sometimes the people that joined the boats weren't the friendliest and nicest of people. And there was fights and there was people that got killed on their way over. It was a very scary time, not only for Miamians, but but for Cubans. There was a lot of great Cubans that came over, my family included. But yes, there was a, a very big portion of bad apples that came over during that time. It's estimated that north of 10,000 criminals, some of them violent criminals, uh, were tacked on. I mean, this was kind of Fidel Castro trying to embarrass the Carter administration on an election year, uh, no less. And indeed, he did lose the election of 1980. It wasn't, wasn't even close. It was not just because of Florida, though. But do you think that there is any chance, and I hear whispers about this in the exile community. You know, I was down in Miami very briefly last week. Some people were mumbling about boats. And maybe there is a chance of another boat lift. If the government, the unpopular government in Havana wants to take some of the pressure off, maybe it allows another mass exodus. Well, that could happen. Is it possible? Yes. Are people waiting with their boats filled up in Miami? Yes. For anything. If they're told, hey, you can take medicine over, but you can't pick anyone up, they'll still make the drive and drop off medicine or food or whatever is needed over there. People just want to help. 
and they want to see a free Cuba. But we're very realistic down here. We haven't seen a free Cuba in over 60 years. So is a, all of a sudden this this uprising, is, is this going to resolve everything? I don't see that happening. But will there be a change? Certainly. Either through uh, some sort of aid for the locals in Cuba or uh, some sort of softening of the Cuban government where they're not so strict on certain things. It's very scary when a whole town of people want to fight the police. They're outnumbered. And as you see all over the internet, people are scared all over the island. But they put their, their fear to the side and they said, hey, we need some sort of change. We want freedom. I don't think they're going to have it, but there will certainly be some sort of change. Um, in the few minutes we have left with you, Frankie, if you got a hearing with uh, Joe Biden and his defense secretary and his secretary of state, outside of just rhetoric and you know saying we support the Cuban people, the people on the street, and we shame on you for cracking down, what should they do? What can they do? What do you and your family expect them to do in this tense moment? I would suggest that the Biden administration takes in full consideration of everything happening. After that, they would have to come up with some sort of very quick plan to alleviate everything happening because you're not going to see a change with people killing each other. There's got to be some sort of intervention from either the Biden administration or someone's got to do something about this. It's because people are dying. They need to take that into full consideration. People are still dying. This is But what kind of what kind of intervention? What can they do? If you look at the history of the United States and Cuba, it's full of interventions in the 20th century. Some were still resented, you know, Bay of Pigs, as as you and I have studied quite well. Uh, everything that happened beforehand when uh, you know, under Bautista and when the mafia ran much of Havana. What can the United States do that's both you know, what can they do? Nefarious, that's non nefarious and that's appreciated by the Cuban street. What can they do? They can do what they've done in every other nation where they've intervened. Manuel Noriega was 10 times tougher than anyone in the Castro administration. And they were able to hold Manuel Noriega accountable for all of his crimes. They brought him over to the US, they sentenced him to a number of years in a federal prison, and he served his time. And when they intervened- That was an invasion, just to clarify for our listeners. That was an actual invasion. He held up in the papal nuncio, and they brought him here, and they put him in the Miami-Dade detention center in a a kind of a cage fortress. So that's actually, that's a military intervention. If the intervention comes in, in, in 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 the form of an invasion, by all means, let's do it. The Castro administration has blood on their hands. I don't see why these people can't go to jail. I don't see why these people can't be held accountable. And I don't see how these people can be peacefully asked to step down once and for all. Hey, guys, you know, you guys had your run 63 years. It was a bloodbath. Even if you don't want to take these guys to jail, get them out of there. The results are going to continue to be bad. Nothing good's going to come out of that administration. Nothing good's going to come out of that. It hasn't been anything good for 63 years. And as we move on, things get worse and worse and worse. 
You were listening to Frankie Rugama. He's known as Frankie Faze down in Miami. He's the exile community activist. Uh, DJ, I used to listen to you, what, on, on FIU radio? FIU radio, uh, 88.1 FM, Supernature Mondays with Mame Disco. That was a number of years ago. number of years ago. Well, uh, keep, us, keep us posted, Frankie, on everything that goes on down there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And and uh, please look forward to uh, to our new podcast. We have this podcast on YouTube called 15 Minutes with Frankie. I have my friend Danny D. He's he's going to be on, on the show with me. And and we touch uh, subjects uh, such as what's going on in Cuba. And our next episode, episode two of the, this new podcast, it's actually titled Communism. And we highlight the evils of communism. I will catch it. Frankie Face, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly, this show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Thank you to our radio listeners up in Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia, the mountains of North Carolina by Asheville, and the valley of Los Angeles. Hello, Ventura County. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Thank you.